It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 211, with Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com and Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. This week, SSD Life, server issues, AI copyright, finding people. And we're back. Hi, Gary. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. I uh, hope things are going well for you down in Denver. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Same for you. So I've had a bit of a rough start. Oh, okay. Um, both January 1st and January 2nd saw their own unique problems that um, make me worry about January 3rd. <laughs> Hopefully it's not a trend. So yesterday um, I got up and, uh, you know, got to to my machines and noticed that one of my machines um, had, it, it's a Linux box that I have down in the basement. It's a basically my pseudo NAS. It's the box that's got um, 11 external drives. And um, it's running Linux. And you're familiar with Linux so that you know what a mm -hmm. load number is. Mm -hmm. um, a normal load, for those that don't don't know, is, is around one if you've got a single CPU. Some of them measure per CPU. I think some measure the aggregate. But bottom line is one is a really good number. Less than one is an even better number. Um, I woke up to finding it at 640, mm. which is not a good number at all. I mean, it's, it's the kind of a number where... Um, Keys, the ability to respond to a keystroke is affected. Mm -hmm. So you'll yeah. type a few things and nothing will happen, nothing will happen, and then poof, it shows up. Um, running a program was seriously compromised. I would type um, top, actually, which is the uh, uh, the process list sorted by CPU usage by default, because I wanted to see who was at fault. And it took maybe five minutes for that to come up. Ooh. Um and there was no culprit in top, which I oh, thought was kind of interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as it turns out, what I have discovered and have since recovered from is that I experienced my very first catastrophic SSD failure. Um, the primary drive on that machine was an SSD. Not a particularly expensive one. I mean, it's it's a you know it's an older machine. I, I didn't um, you know put top of the line kind of stuff in it. It was the the S the internal SSD was literally just running the operating system and a few scripts. Um, so, but it's been what a year, two years, um, and no, it's less than a year, right? It's a year, and um, the SSD just basically said, "Nope, I'm done," mm -hmm. uh, to the point where um, it was. Uh, I could, I took it out. And of course I tried to uh, see if I could maybe image it to recover anything off of it. Um, but even connecting it to my PC through an external, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. So that drive is now a, uh, uh, well, it's, it's no longer a drive, I guess is the way to put it. It is now a chunk of electronics recycling. Yeah. So that was an interesting thing to wake up to. Fortunately, I had a you know spare drive. I've got a spare uh, traditional one terabyte you know spinning drive, and I just did that and reinstalled the latest version of Ubuntu Linux, threw my scripts back on it, and I was I've been in business. But um, that was an interesting start to the year for sure. That's a, yeah, that's an unusual case, you know, hearing an SSD fail. But people talk a lot, especially in the Mac world. I don't know if it's the same in the PC world. Uh, they talk a lot about SSD failure because years ago, somebody, uh, a, a, a blogger or two, posted things about how SSDs have a limited number of reads and writes. And sure enough, if you look at, like, if you go into the technical details of, like, the drive, mm -hmm. you know, who manufactures the actual memory in those SSD drives, and they do actually have like a here's the amount of uh, data that can be read and written to this, like the expected lifespan of it. Right. right. And so people looking into that said, oh, hey, wait a minute. You know, we could easily, you know, take a MacBook, uh, typical use, three years. Hey, this could exceed that. So the SSDs have a short life. And you should be really wary of like using them too much. Like, so anything that you're doing, like, oh, you're doing video editing and it's writing out a cache of video all the time. 
oh, that's constant reading and writing. That's bad. You're going to shorten the, the life of your drive. Um, and these th that kind of thinking proliferates a lot on the internet. Mm -hmm. It does. Uh, and most, most users don't know anything about it. And they just buy their MacBook and they're fine. Uh, but some who do the research look in and and find this and say, oh, no, there are certain things I shouldn't do. I shouldn't, uh, you know, uh, have backups going on, for instance, is one of the dangerous things that people think they shouldn't do uh, because that's a lot of reads and writes. Uh, or they shouldn't be using certain apps in certain ways or they should somehow disable swap memory or whatever. Something that's really detrimental to the computer because of the number of read and writes. And what it comes down to is – uh, you know, the manufacturers of the chips that go into SSDs, they're really conservative about those numbers. Yeah. So they said, look, we're, we're going to guarantee that it'll do this, you know, th right. this amount of data. Um, but in fact, they far exceed it. And what I typically, uh, you know, when people ask me about this, well, what do I do to, to limit the number of reads and writes to my drive so my MacBook doesn't die after three years? First thing I say is, have you ever had an SSD fail on you? <laughs> and have you ever heard of anybody having an SSD fail like that? Right. Uh, because it exceeded the amount of data you could read and write. And the answer is like almost always, and it's obviously different in your case now. <laughs> but um, it is, uh, but you know, it's like you said yourself, you had like 11 drives attached to this one machine. Um, it's usually no. And usually then other people could go and cite things like, oh, I have a 2009 MacBook Air. You know that's still fine, and that was like one of the first SSDs in a laptop. Right. Um, I have had a number of machines that have passed on to recycling mm -hmm. with other things like bat. You know, oh my second battery, never mind. I'm just going to get a new one. That kind of thing. Right, right. Or right. something else, the screen going bad, the keyboard going bad, while the SSD is perfectly fine on it. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of it, it's interesting. There's a lot, a lot of people that are very concerned about the life of their SSD needlessly, but it doesn't mean that they don't also occasionally fail any piece of tech hardware. Well, yeah, that's the, so, and I've got some thoughts on exactly what happened to mine, but the, the issue that I, t I tend to tell people, of course, is that, as you say, any piece of hardware can fail um, without warning and completely yeah. catastrophically. Um, that's mm -hmm. just the nature of hardware. Um, and, these days, one of the things that's happened with SSDs is that the quality has been improving fairly steadily over that decade, right? So if you've got yeah. a machine with one of the first SSDs, it's probably, you know, the fact that you've got it going 13 years later is, is actually pretty amazing. Uh, and of course, it all depends on how you use the machine. As it turns out, flash memory uh, is limited actually not by the amount of reads, but by the number of writes. The more you write to it, um, the shorter the lifespan. What I found funny was that years ago, again, when these were first coming out, uh, they somebody decided to basically say, "Oh, I wonder if what ha I wonder what happens if I put the Windows paging file onto this cheap flash drive um, mm. and you know run low on memory." And sure enough, you know it took about a day, and the thing just crapped out. But again, that was uh, a thumb drive, which was. Um, uh, typically cheaper than yes. the SSD memory that you end yeah, up hold on using. Level, yeah. yeah, you end up using for your um, hard drives. While it's the same "quote unquote" technology, there's a difference in uh, the, just the quality of the assembly and the quality of the components used. So my SSD uh, is Western Digital, uh, 500 gigabyte, and I when I bought it, I actually bought it for this machine last year, uh, but. Like I said, this is a, it's a low-end machine. It's probably about a 10-year-old machine. And uh, it's not, you know, the 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 internal drive just wasn't something that I expected was going to get used heavily anyway, because everything is on these external drives and all of the external drives are spinning platter. Um, so I went cheap, right? It was like a, a $40, $50 SSD drive, oh, which, okay, yeah. you know, which, you know, probably has the implication that, okay, maybe it's not everything that... Um, you know, the SSD drives you might get with your new machines would be. Um, so I'm honestly, I'm honestly not at all surprised, not in the least bit surprised. Uh, and like I said, you know, recovery was not an issue. What I tell people these days about SSDs is that, yes, um, you know, they will wear out. But as you've experienced, they typically uh, 
outlast the usable lifespan of the machine into which they've been placed. Um, that wasn't always the case, but chances are these days, when you get a new machine that has an SSD in it, you will get rid of the machine for some reason other than the SSD failing in some number of years. Um, yeah. And yeah. It's, you know, my, uh, heck, my, um, my old Mac Pro uh, is sitting next to the machine I've been talking about uh, down in the basement. It's, uh, I think it's one of those that's like 12 years old, something like that. I think uh -huh. it's a 2003, I'll make it about 11 years old. Um, and it came with flash memory back then. And it's been running for fine. sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, again, I'm not doing a lot of heavy use of the drives. It's of the drive itself. I did when it was my primary machine. Uh, that was several years ago. And ever since then, it's just been sort of, you know, doing some, uh, some uh, backup work, some other kinds of things down in my basement ever since. So, mm. but yes, um, SSDs can, can and do fail. And uh, yeah, it happens. And finally, it happened to me. The problem that I occur, uh, encountered this morning was completely unrelated. Um, I got up and um, as one does, I checked my email uh, before I came downstairs and it told me that I had no internet. Mm -hmm. Um, again, it's my mobile phone. So I switched it over to the uh, mobile carrier to, to get connectivity, but my home internet wasn't working. Okay, fine. You know, it happens. Um, managed, you know, took the dogs out, got them fed, all that kind of stuff. Sure. And then came back in and started looking at what the problem might be. And, uh, sure enough, the, uh, my entire internet was down. And when I went to the ISP's portal, uh, I was curious if there was like a system outage or if there was something else going on. And the only thing that they were reported was that indeed uh, they could not connect to my router, which apparently they normally do. Um, so fine. Again, down to the basement where the equipment lives. And uh, I did what we always suggest you do first. Oh. Turn it off and turn it back on again. Yeah. Um, but this was weird. There wasn't a power switch on this particular one. And when I unplugged the power cable, it didn't turn off. Well, the, the light kept on. I mean, it was just there. It was it was still it was not working properly, but it was still running, huh. um, which had me scratching my head for a minute until I realized that there were a couple of access panels secured with a couple of screws. And clearly. Uh, they must have had uh, basically backup battery inside of the router. Um, this is a small business router, right? I've got I've got small business um, uh, connectivity from my ISP, so it's a slightly higher end thing. But okay, great. How do I turn it off and back on? Again? Yeah, you think they provide a switch in that case? Um, in it, it, there was no switch. Trust me, I looked. Yeah. Um, and what's funny is that when you actually uh, you know go to the website. Uh, and say, okay, fine, this is the problem. They, the first thing they tell you to do is to turn it off and back on again. And they tell you to do that by unplugging it, <laughs> waiting 15 seconds and plugging it back in again. But 15 seconds wasn't nearly enough. I suspect it probably would have taken several hours for the batteries to run dry or something. Right. Anyway, I kept very, very carefully looking at the machine and there was this tiny little hole that with this, um, you know, the arrows chasing each other next yeah. to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it was, you know, clearly that was a reset button. What I was hoping is that it wasn't a factory reset button. Ugh. It was just a reset, reset button, you know, reboot right. kind of a thing. Or at least uh, it takes 10 seconds to do a factory reset. Yes. Yeah, yeah, process. yeah. That's yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, of course, I did the just the quick put, you know, the quick push. And yeah. sure enough, uh, all of a sudden I heard the little fans inside the thing spin up like it was rebooting. So... Um, and finally, you know, yep, sure. About ten minutes later, given the complexity of my network, everything was back and back and and working. Uh, I still have no idea what happened, um, other than the fact that, well, again, stuff happens. Um, having a device running continually for, well, in this case, probably years, um, it's not surprising that eventually it might crash. Right. Um, it is, in fact, itself a small computer anyway. So everything that, you know, can possibly go wrong with software could eventually go wrong on the device. But, uh, but yeah, that was January 2nd's excitement. And wow. uh, let's hope that January 3rd does not continue the trend. Yeah. 
I used to years ago have a, uh, you know, have both my router and the modem, the DSL modem that came into the house hooked up to the same power strip. Mm -hmm. And then that power strip was hooked up to one of the, like a lamp timer, <laughs> you know, the, old, the things you would install to make your lamps yep. go off. Yep, yep, yep. And basically I had that set to go off at like 2.55 a.m. and turn on at 3 a.m. Um, every night. So basically it power cycled those two devices together uh, yep. every night in the middle of the night because otherwise, uh, you know, this is probably 20 years ago, you know, uh, otherwise it would it would go maybe a month and then there would be some issue where you're just power cycling would work. So this way I knew that every day it was like a fresh new start with these things. Uh, but I don't do that now. I, it's been, uh, my current setup's been pretty um It's pretty funny. I used to do that with Windows. Um, I actually had my PC, uh, which is on 24 hours a day. Uh, I would have it reboot itself in the middle of the night as part of, you know, a batch file that I would run overnight for various things. Mm -hmm. um, and some years ago, I stopped doing that just because, okay, Windows seemed stable enough. It kept running just fine. And eventually it would end up having to get rebooted for an update, which basically served the purpose as well. Uh, but um, uh, things have been going backwards a little bit. And sometime, I think in the middle of last year, I reinstituted that reboot um, so that my machine now, like you said, you know, two, three, four o'clock in the morning, sometime when I'm certainly not going to be around, uh, yeah. it, it does the reboot thing. And I actually went so far as to say, okay, fine. Well, if you're going to reboot automatically and I'm not going to care how long it takes, then let's go ahead and make sure you automatically start um, both of my browsers, my to-do list, my other thing, I mean, it probably fires up about half a dozen other things that normally you would fire up manually. But since it's automatically rebooting when nobody's around, mm. I might as well have my browser ready to go when I get there. Sure, sure. So, yeah, yeah, let's, uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it reminded me when you said the thing about like the CPU usage was some really high number. Um that I've been having an issue with uh, not any home stuff or business stuff, but server, you know, so like at the, you know, I use liquid web and at their location or whatever, my server, um, you know, it's just every once in a while, it's very robust. It'll go down, but it detects it went down and mm -hmm. it'll reboot, not reboot the whole server, but reboot whatever the problem was. So HTTP or MySQL or whatever. So, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and there'll be two emails, one at like 4 a.m. that said MySQL is down. I one at 401 saying MySQL has been, been rebooted. <laughs> and then, you know, then it'll be like HTTP, the same thing and, you know, and all that. And I started to get a little sick of it because, you know, what happens like once a day, some, something would go down or go back up a few minutes later. I was like, there's got to be a better way. So I eventually, I just went, I opened a support ticket and I just said, look, I want to get to the bottom of this. Why does this stuff, why am I getting these? Right. I like what's causing it. Can we do something about it? Right. And the first support person wasn't very helpful. Basically said, uh, oh yeah, everything seems to be working great now. And we could sell you this higher level package that will right. secure your server. And I looked through everything carefully and said, nothing you suggested will actually prevent this. It will prevent other things, but it won't prevent this. Um, the second person I talked to was actually really helpful. And I asked them, because they went and they said, here's here, the last time this happened, there were these two IP addresses that were hammering your server. I blocked oh. them for you. Okay. And I said, great. But I know that it's not going to be those two IP addresses tomorrow. Right. <laughs> right? So... It was great you did that, but it didn't really fix anything. I don't want to have to just constantly be calling support, you know, or texting support every time. Tell me what you did to figure out it was those two IP addresses that caused the problem. And uh, I, that actually led me down like a rabbit hole that didn't really produce anything useful, but it got me thinking what would be useful. And I did something I can't believe doesn't exist because I looked everywhere and you can go in, and I know how to do this pretty well now, go into Shell, and I can go and look through the access logs and use a bunch of you know commands and grip right. and all that stuff to like, figure out, like, okay, in the last 
for the last 10,000 requests has any IP address really stood out, you know, right. and get that and all that. But that's that takes me actually saying, oh, I've got time. It's two in the afternoon. I've got time. I'm going to log in right. and just see if anybody's been hammering the server for the last few hours. So instead, I set up a little uh, hourly task that does this for me and produces a report and just puts the report on the server, and then I can access it whenever I want. Right. And so now, many times a day, I can go to that report, and usually it tells me that, oh, the top IP address has accessed the site 30 times, which is nothing, which is fine. That's, I don't know, maybe somebody poking around, looking at a bunch of videos or whatever. Sure. Every once in a while, it tells me there's one that's a thousand, right? And then I could go and say, ah, and I could block that IP address, right. like on a regular basis before that IP address becomes a problem. So it's a kind of a neat little solution I came up with uh, to do it. And I just can't believe like all of these tools, there's so many security tools. If you dig into like any server software, so many, like there are things, for instance, if somebody tries to log on to your server, right. there's things called brute force, you know, uh, attack uh, prevention. So if somebody tries to log on the server five times in a row, Right, they're booted. Uh, they're booted. But it's yeah. like, I want somebody booted if they try to access my server like more than 100 times just loading web pages because that's not a person, right? Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize like web servers, they're a ton of traffic, of course, is normal users. And they you, you load a web page and there's a few graphics on a web page and all of that. But it, in general, you don't use the server that much, just one, a real person actually surfing in real time where you're actually looking at a page, reading an article, viewing something. Um, it's it's not that much. But, and then our server gets hit by all sorts of other things. One of those is web crawlers, which right. are kind of legitimate, right? When Google's right. saying, oh, we want to make sure we have the latest index of everything so we can have you in the search results. And that's fine, but it is like when they do that, they're, accessing the server like a thousand times more than users right. are uh they but tend to a good yeah. a good crawler will at least pace themselves yeah it will it will and um and but the other thing there's this mystery section in the middle of like <laughs> things that aren't people but they're not like it's not like google and yahoo and bing and all that it's these things and some of them are obviously bad like bad actors and if you, you can look through the access logs and see what they try to access. And if they're trying to do things like hitting every little directory in your server, like with slash login dot py or slash login dot, right. yep. you know, then you're like, oh, you're looking for like a login page that you could try to exploit. Um, but then there's other things that it's like, why you're not looking for a login page. I can see what you're looking at. You're, what are you looking for? Like, what are you doing? And it's just a mystery. And you I look it theory. up and it's like the IP address is somewhere. And like, sometimes it's like China. Sometimes it's like Germany. Sometimes it's Ohio. Right. You know, and it's just, it's just really weird. And then they do a lot of it, right? They, you know, it's like, it's just a very strange thing that goes on. What's your I have theory? A theory on those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I believe what they are doing is they are searching for unpatched vulnerabilities. Yeah. So there is, you know, say, you know, your your website. Um, you, I forget, you don't use WordPress. Is that correct? I do use WordPress. Do, yeah. Okay. Fine. Oh yeah. Um. So it, we see it all the time, right? WordPress plugins have vulnerabilities yeah. and they get fixed. Um, occasionally WordPress itself has a vulnerability and it gets fixed. And usually those vulnerabilities um, are exposed in the term of, well, you know, don't do this in a URL. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the uh, bad actors basically collect all of those things and uh, they just try them against the server to see if maybe you're running an unpatched version of yada yada oh, yeah, plug yeah. in right yeah yeah um it looks very random because you there's this thing that just comes completely out of the blue um but yeah I, that's my theory that they're that they're actually probing for unpatched vulnerabilities and that's one of the reasons that uh, especially in the wordpress world much like the windows world uh, it's so important to uh, to keep up to stay up to date yeah yeah no and it's, so your theory is basically they're all bad actors all the mysterious stuff which is which is probably 
you're probably right. <laughs> they probably are. Because my theory of like, there's some out there that I don't know what they're doing. I mean, I know occasionally there are things like there's RS, either RSS readers or software that people have that could, I don't know, just download collections of things. I mean, some of them actually could be, you know, these AI uh, large language models collecting their data yep. too, yep. which is kind of a web crawler, but may not behave say, the same way. Um, in theory, they're supposed to, right? Which yeah. is nice. And I'm sure that the legitimate ones uh, almost right. certainly do for various reasons. I've wondered sometimes though, if um, occasionally in like uh, college computer science classes, if one yeah. of the assignments isn't to write a web crawler and they do so, but they don't have these limitations that keep it well-behaved to the website. So mm. all of a sudden your, your C student um, is pounding your site because they forgot to include a delay between every request or something like that. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons. One of the things I've told people before, and it's actually true for, um, uh, it has practical, practical uh, meaning for average users. But what I keep saying is that every server on the internet is under constant attack. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a slow, constant attack. I used to, um, we use, I think we both use SSH to get our command line um, access to our servers. And if you leave it on the default port, you could just take a look at the at your logs and you could just see failed login attempt after failed login attempt, just very slowly happening. Um, the reason I say it's pragmatic for or, or practical for the average user is that that same concept applies to their accounts. Uh, whatever your account is at Gmail or at Yahoo or at Microsoft or at Dropbox or at whatever other services you're using. Um, yeah, you know what? They're under constant attack too. Uh, hopefully the Microsofts or the Googles of the world have things set up so that they are, you know, doing the right thing. But uh, especially when you've got like a, a new service or um, a service that is um, just not completely up to snuff, that's sometimes the kind of stuff they fall, they fall victim to. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating anytime you look into it and, but I mean, I guess my, my most, the most amazing thing to me is the fact that this very simple tool I've put together for myself, isn't something at standard where oh, you can just block these people. I have um, ideas. Yeah. I, and even, I don't know, I looked around to try to find, I mean, you'll find tons of people that will tell you how to do exactly what I'm doing from right. the command line, right? Tons mm -hmm. of, and there sure. are different ways. There are different logs you can look at. Right. There are different ways to look at the logs, tons of that. And I suppose the hardcore server people, they're always logged in. Like if it was my job at a company to be maintaining the server, I'd imagine sitting at my desk, I'd have a, a you know, I'd be constantly logged in. So I don't need anything special. I can just run a little command. I probably have a little macro set up, boom. And I could see what's going on on the server. But I don't want to be logged in all the time of course. to the server. Matter of fact, I, I counted it as a success if I go months without having to log into the <laughs> shell, right? right. Which, I, which I, I have, like in 2023, I definitely did. But the last right. three weeks, I've been constantly logged in because I've been <laughs> kind of developing this. Um, but it is kind of uh, it, it 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 has helped me, and I'm looking at my CPU um number, the same one we were talking about, right? Which I believe on my server is per CPU. So I think mine might be a four core, might right. be an eight core. You know, so in other words, if it's four core, a four would be, you know, using the CPUs to their fullest. Right. Uh, a one is actually using twenty five percent of your right. And I have been like consistently like at numbers like 0 0.1, 0 0.2. Yes, yes, those uh, are good since, numbers. Since I started doing this and just swatting in my spare time, you know, like as a break, you know, oh, I have to, I'm going to procrastinate before I start this next task. Let me hit this bookmark here and see, oh, look, there's somebody with 400 accesses. That's no good. Deny them, you know, put, add them to the deny list. Um, so and uh and it's been it's been really good and no i haven't gotten those crashes really i think i went down from one to two a day to maybe one a week since i started this excellent excellent yeah. that's good to know because it's funny because i have a couple of of servers that i manage for other folks that are 
um, again, independent servers at a hosting company. Yeah. And yeah, I get those emails too. That, you know, all of a sudden, yeah. hey, uh, in my case, it's usually the mailer. Uh, the mailer goes down and then the mailer mm -hmm. comes back up. Uh, and it's because same concept is that somebody's pounding on the uh, the mail port uh, to try and yeah. sign in and start sending spam. I have two things for you to, you, you may have looked at these already, but I have two things to, for you to, to at least consider. Um, one is uh, you're running cPanel, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, cPanel has one of a couple of different firewalls embedded, and it would not surprise me if those firewalls exposed some kind of a rate limit. Even if they don't, it gets really, really weird. Um, IP tables, which is the Linux native firewall, the firewall that you're using in cPanel and those others, all they're really doing is managing uh, the instructions for IP tables. Uh, IP tables can probably do this. It's just going to be really, really esoteric <laughs> to set it up. <laughs> um, and then the other one is, at least on the HTTP side, I'd be shocked if Mod Security didn't do something for this. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've got Mod Security and um, Config Server Firewall. Mm -hmm. uh, makes it really easy to deny once I have an IP address, right, makes it easy to deny. And one of the cool things I do with my script, by the way, is that I don't just you know look at the access log, what IP addresses are used a lot, you know, mm -hmm. uh, sort them, give me the top one at the top. I also remove the ones that are local IP addresses because those are always going to be at the top, the ones right. basically the server talking to itself. Yeah. Uh, and then I, um, I then also I have some websites that if you punch an IP address in there, it'll give you a kind of rating. Like, is this a bad actor or not? Based oh, cool. on, does it appear yep. on blacklists? Right. Uh, you know, is it, is, does it appear on lists of like, is this behind a, uh, uh, some sort of VPN? Uh, you know, and it'll show you things like its location, all that. And the, um, and I have those in my script with just links. So all I have to do when I see a high number is click one link and it takes me right to one of these pages <laughs> as if I plugged it in. And it's interesting because you would think that like, okay, I, you know, just because it's in a different country doesn't mean it's bad. Right. But it does mean that I won't get into any trouble by just denying it. What right. I mean by that is if it says USA and I think, well, I'm in the USA, my server's in the USA, think twice before blocking an IP address because right. am I blocking Liquid Web's support team? Am right. I blocking myself? Maybe my IP address has changed, or maybe <laughs> right. I was on my mobile phone doing something, right? Um, but if it says that it's another country, then no. <laughs> I, I may, I may. the worst that could happen is I may be blocking a legitimate user in right. Right. China it's funny. from I have, viewing my site. I'm trying to remember. I, I don't remember the exact reason but I did have someone reach out to me via email asking me if I'd gone out of business because they couldn't reach my site anymore. Wow. And in fact, what had happened is their IP address, for some reason, like I said, I don't know, um, had gotten on the block list. So I, you know, took it off the list and all of a sudden I was back in business. <laughs> yeah. So. And I'm sure, you know what, I am convinced also that happens because, not with, I've never seen it happen with mine or nobody's ever tried to contact me, but there are pieces to our sites, like particularly video pieces mm -hmm. uh, that are at different places. Um, so the, you might be able to load the page, but the actual video comes from another server. Yes. Yep. And sometimes I'll get somebody saying, I'm getting a 403 error, just shows up when I try to view your video. And it's like, yeah, so something between you and the video server is not connecting. And what one thing it could be is the video server could have you listed, you know, blacklisted. Right. Um, right. Maybe not you. Maybe a whole block that includes right. you. Yep. That might be because you're on a VPN and somebody else using your VPN was doing something bad. <laughs> so that. Yeah, fortunately, I've not run into that yeah. one, but it makes total sense. Like you say, the other thing is a lot of my. Um, um, images and so forth come from yet another server, not one of my servers, but yet another server that has its own set of, um, you know, checking for uh, you know, bad activity. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. um, so I just noticed that we have been talking for something like a half an hour. Yeah. And I don't think we have yet me mentioned AI. AI? Well, 
but everything I've said was written by AI. I, there we go. That's right. Hey, I, heck, your voice is AI, right? I couldn't be, I couldn't be here today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, yeah. If, I thought this was kind of interesting. I ran across this this morning. It was surfaced by our friend Tara over at Research Buzz. Mm. It's how to use Chat GPT to read and explain terms of service. It's a uh, oh. an article over at uh, I think it's TechCrunch. Uh, no, How to Geek. And what I found interesting about this is that this is one of the things, not terms of service, but it's one of the things that I occasionally use Chat GPT for. I will um, either you know, copy paste this huge bucket of text that I don't want to take the time to read. And I will tell, uh, you know, ChatGPT, hey, summarize this for me. And it comes up with a much more reasonable bite-sized um, interpretation of what that text is. What I find interesting about that is that since it is not trying to gather facts, it is just interpreting language the chances of it actually getting it wrong are much lower, right? It's not going to hallucinate mm -hmm. based on the text that it's already reading. So I find that very useful. For the fun of it, I went ahead and grabbed Facebook's terms of service. They are lengthy. They are boring. They are legalese. Um, they are uh, 5,000 words long. And uh, I'm sure uh, there, there are people that love to read these things. I'm just not one of them. So I asked ChatGPT to summarize, and it came up with a very nice 227-word summary that actually made sense. It highlighted all of the important points. It highlighted the things to be concerned about, whose roles are what, and so forth. I just thought this was a very, very fascinating thing. Now, what I thought was interesting about the, um, uh, the How To Geek article is that they, of course, start with a disclaimer, right? Mm -hmm. Chat GPT is not a replacement for a lawyer, and what it outputs what it outputs is not legal advice, blah blah blah. Right. So they're basically um, not only do they have to cover their behind for basically telling you how to do that, but um, it's just the nature of the beast that you know it's interpreting facts, but it's not necessarily interpreting the implication of those facts on your specific situation. I just find this a really interesting use of Chat GPT. Uh, I've, as you know, I've been using ChatGPT and, and a few others for a number of different things, but um, this one actually, to me, has practical application. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of similar to when you ask like a transcript, you know, you have a transcript of something. Yes. And you and you use ChatGPT to basically ask questions about what's there. Um, it's funny the the example in how to geek actually did not do what I did. I just said summarize this uh, these terms of mm -hmm. services. And what they did is they said I forget which terms of service they used, but they said okay, read these. Yeah. And it does. And then it, they just started asking questions against it. Yeah, that's I thought was really really interesting, uh, you know, an interesting approach. I have yet to get in that mindset of actually chatting with ChatGPT. My use tends to be do this and you're done do this and you're done. Uh, but actually asking it to then, you know, have a conversation with me is just something that, I don't know, for some reason, I've just not gotten there. Man, I would love to have um, this ability for things that probably it can't get easy access to, like books. Uh, it kind, of, kind of ties into the next, next thing I was going to bring up. But like, you know, sometimes you read a book and then you have a question about something happened earlier in the book. Right. And your only way to figure it out is to actually try to look through the book and figure out where that part was and right. reread it. Uh, but chat GPT or you know, any large language model, if it if it read the whole book and had it all available, mm -hmm. then could you could technically talk to it like a friend who read the book and has perfect recall. Yes. And you could say, but wait a minute, didn't it early in the book, did this character mention this to this other character? And they, it would be able to tell you, you know, nope, not at all, or yes, you know, it did. Um, and that could be really useful, not just for that, but for movies and television as well. Uh, if it had access to that, I imagine part of the problem with that is copyright issues. Uh, but right. I've, I've never tried it. I mean, I assume it's read a lot of stuff. I certainly have done the thing where I've asked it to generate drawings based on things in books. Right. You know, what does a certain spaceship look like or a person look like or whatever? And it does it. So I think it's got it in its large language model. Um, uh, I don't know. It's if interesting because yeah. yeah, 
So go ahead and start in on the next item, because I think that ties into this really, really yeah. well. So I think so. There's two different news stories happened over the last couple of weeks that that tie in together, and I'm always, of course, looking to find out what is what is Apple up to with new <laughs> technology and stuff. Like so, when it comes to AI, what is Apple up to? There is no Apple GPT, right? There's no product Apple has that does anything like ChatGPT, which is related adjacent to Microsoft, and then Bard, which is Google, and all of that. Apple doesn't seem to have anything available, but there are rumors that there is an Apple GPT and people in Cupertino have access to it. <laughs> and the question is, what are they going to do with it? How is it going to be different? And I think these two related stories uh, make sense. One is, of course, a story that was repeated in just about every major publication is that uh, New York Times and uh, other publications have, have basically ganged up and are suing OpenAI uh, and Microsoft uh, for copyright infringement saying, hey, you read all our stuff and that's part of your large language model and that's a copyright issue. Now, I'm not, I don't want to argue about whether or not it is or not because uh, I know – I think we pretty much have the same opinions. I mean if you asked for a story about a boy wizard and it spat out Harry Potter – Right, you would say, yeah, "Hey, copyright, it's copyright infringement." infringement. Yes. <laughs> but if it made a completely different story that had some Harry Potter-like elements, obviously the same thing that somebody who had read Harry Potter and many other books would then produce, then is it probably not? I don't know. It's 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 a tough area. I wrote an um, item, uh, an article on my personal blog about this. I, first of all, I don't think copyright law works for yeah. AI for this stuff. And I, but I don't think there's any legislation really that works right now. So I think that the, what we're looking at is something new. But um, the, the argument that that OpenAI is making is that, uh, well, yes, we read your book, but we didn't store your book. Right. And, and we're not reproducing it. And we're not, we're not even uh, plagiarizing it. Right. Right. So yeah, but, but Regardless, there is a lot of sympathy on the side of the copyright holders. This of course, New York Times and all that. That yeah, that this is not uh, this is not a good thing. And and who knows? It, probably it's the kind of thing I think that won't lead to a legal uh, decision, but more like a settlement. And one of the reasons I think that is because there's strong rumors that Apple is in talks with many publishers to license their stuff for right. large language model AI. So right. Apple might be taking the tact of like, this is a lost battle. Everybody's going to have to pay up. So instead we'll go around the other way <laughs> and we will license things first and have a clean large language model that it's only licensed things. And not only not only will it be licensed things, but you know it's got like the stamp of approval because licensing usually isn't just like it's okay to use this stuff. But Apple likes to bring a lot of other stuff into it. Like for instance, when Apple uh, did all the music licensing, they didn't just get permission. Okay, you can you could sell our songs, but they got a lot of marketing stuff on the side. Oh, right. not only we can we you sell our songs, but we're going to go and promote it. You know, we're going to have this agreement and it's going to be a whole big PR thing, PR love fest, you know, between the Beatles and Apple or whatever. Right. And it could be the same kind of thing where Apple goes and gets all these publications and says, we'll pay you money. It's part of our large language model. And then also you're going to send people to us. Are you going to say, oh, Apple's the only approved AI to get information from whatever? That kind of thing. So it could be interesting to see, and I, I think it uh, could be like the kind of thing where as if the whole AI world is under attack for copyright and Apple comes out and says, well, we're not. We've licensed <laughs> every last you know, word right, right. and put it into this model. Um, then and that could be – that could give us a clue as to what Apple might be up to uh, in terms of uh, of AI and that we might actually get an Apple – like a, a Siri version 2. It's interesting because you know when I take a look, obviously, and probably like you, I've played with ChatGPT and Claude and Bard and Microsoft's um, uh, equivalent, and they all feel kind of sort of the same, right? Um, with res with the, the real difference being, you know, some give you better answers than others, but ultimately it's all pretty much the same thing. 
Um, yeah. Just because Apple is Apple, I have to wonder if they might even be coming at it from a different direction. I have no idea what that direction would look like, what it would, how they would expose it. Um, but it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, whenever a year from now or six months from now, they introduce this thing and we all go, oh, that's how they should have been doing it all along. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I think this, the licensing might be one. Another part that I've talked about previously is more on-device processing. Right. Right. And which, which is, clearly you know, they've positioned themselves for with, the with all those neural, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. neural network um, processors on right built into the Apple Silicon. Right. So yeah, it, it could be uh, an interesting thing. I mean, I think Apple's up to something. Uh, and, but everybody else is also up to something. It's just, it's, there's going to be a lot of movement. There's this. a lot of some things to play with right now. My biggest fear is that, um, you know, as, as I said, I'm playing with chat GPT, I'm playing with Dolly, I'm playing with mid journey I'm playing with all those things. Um, and if at some point one of these, um, legal challenges, uh, mm. basically causes them all to turn a dial back to make yeah. these tools less useful. That worries me. Um, I'm hoping that there'll be some kind of a resolution. And honestly, I don't I don't really have a dog in the fight of what the resolution should be, but I'm just hoping that uh, we as consumers won't lose functionality because of um, because of the legal decision. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I uh, the only thing I'm certain about is there will be change. <laughs> like it, it's not going to stay the same. I mean, right. hopefully it'll get better for like mostly for the consumers, for us. Right. Um, but uh, but it, it, things are going to be different. And, uh, you know, I don't know. We'll we'll see. Yep, we will. Mm -hmm. So ain't it cool? Yeah. Um, I, of course, uh, probably like you have been, you know, reading and watching and watching and reading over the last month and a half. And I don't want to talk about any of that today. Uh, I'm going to, I'll save some of those for, for upcoming episodes. One of the things I stumbled onto uh, in my, uh, you know, travails or traverses or whatever you want to call it on TikTok is a guy called Jose Monkey. Now, obviously, that's not his real name. That's his screen name. But what he does I think is very interesting and actually important for people to understand, especially when they have kids who are out in the world using social media. Here's what he does. He has people send him short clips of where they are. Um, I mean, they can be really short, like five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever. They can be like 180 degree panoramas, 360 degree full rotation uh, of just wherever they are, some random location on the planet. And obviously people tend to try and choose relatively obscure places that would be hard for him to locate. And yet that's exactly what he does. For the vast majority, I want to say like 80%, he's actually quoted a number, but for the vast majority of these things that people are sending him, he basically talks through the process he used to figure out not just what city they're in, but literally you were standing here when yeah. you took this video. Um and it's it's fascinating. I mean, I love understanding the the tools and the techniques that he used. But the reason that this comes to mind, and the reason that I'll probably end up talking about it on Ask Leo at some point, is that this is an example of how people can use all of the information that we're pretty much constantly leaking to the internet um, to find out things about us. Uh, you might be taking you know selfies of yourself on vacation or selfies of yourself at at in, at home, or maybe it's just a, a fun video of your dogs, your corgis, or your or whatever is going on. And and yet you you think it's relatively obscure, it's relatively anonymous, and yet it's often enough information for someone who is motivated to actually research and find out exactly where you are. Now, I do point out that someone has to be motivated. I mean, this isn't necessarily a likely, you know, a, a very easy thing. Uh, some of his quick ones, obviously, when they're when 
you know, they're just obvious stuff in the video. Sure, five, 10 minutes. More often than not, he's spending half an hour, an hour, two hours, four hours, or several hours one day, and then he has to put it aside and come back to it with some other ideas. Um, so it does require somebody who's motivated, but I think it is really important to understand, for people to understand, that this is very, very possible uh, for for people to do. So I just want people to uh, to understand that. Well, of course, we'll have the link in the show notes, but it is um, Jose Monkey. One of the things that he does to uh, basically prevent you from sending uh, a video of somebody else you want to locate, right? One of the things you could see happening is, okay, fine. I want to find out where Gary is. So I'm going to steal this video from him, mm -hmm. send it to Jose Monkey, and then, you know, find out where Gary is. Uh, he has you basically either personally or in writing, uh, basically include the phrase, hey, Jose Monkey, try and find me. Yeah. So that, you know, it, it the video is clearly uh, you asking for someone to uh, find you. Uh, but anyway, I just found it really fascinating and a, probably an important lesson for a lot of people. Yep. I, I've seen somebody, well, I have seen Jose Monkey, and I've also seen somebody do, do something similar uh, with a an account, like usually an Instagram account of some sort, mm -hmm. who basically uh, his or it might be her thing was to just take an account and say, I could find, I could, I could figure out who you are. And so the challenge, somebody would go and say, no, you can't this, here's my handle. It's not any way related to my name. And, uh, I don't post any pictures of myself, uh, or like anything around my area. You can't figure out who I am. And then she takes that as a challenge, right. Uh, to actually figure it out. And then, um, usually a lot of times it involves like looking at who likes your stuff and, right. yep. you know, then, and, and, and then even like trying to figure out, okay, that might be not, not be your name, but it might mean something to you, you know, and also spelling out the whole process. Like, right. here's what I started with. It seemed impossible. It was a challenge. And I went and I did this. And then a lot of times, if I remember correctly, she stops short and like she, she's gets to the point where it's obvious, oh yeah, she's going to figure it out. Right. And then she'll just say something like odd, say, you know, like, oh, so from there I was able to figure it out. So that's a nice apple orchard you've got there or something like that. Right, that's right, like right, right. the person would be like, oh yeah, she found me. But yeah. other people watching may may stole it, have no idea. Right. Um, right. So when that, but it's same goal is to show you, it's like, you think you're anonymous. You think you can't be found. If somebody's motivated enough, there's a lot that can be done. Right. So. For some reason, it made me think about, I think we've mentioned this as a, a previous Ain't It Cool uh, lock picking lawyer. Um, yeah, yeah. That's he's, a good he's, one. Yeah, same he's awesome. It's the same idea. That, I mean, I will will never trust a padlock for anything. Yes. Secure. So, but yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, I wanted to, I've got a lot of uh, stuff in the last few weeks that I've read right. and uh, consumed and all that. But the one I wanted to bring up because it's kind of timely is there's a new movie out on Netflix by the same guy that brought us uh, uh, the TV show. Uh, oh, why did it just slip my mind? Sam, uh, Sam Esmail, who produced uh, the TV what? show. Yeah, I, I yeah. know what you mean. But oh, yes. why did it just, you know, it's funny, you get older and these, <laughs> these things. Just, yeah. So anyway, he produced a movie. And like that other show, which, whose name will come to me in a second, um, it uh, has a lot of tech stuff in it. And it's called a Leave the World Behind. Right. And the, the uh, it's like a two and a half hour movie and it stars like Julia Roberts and all right. this stuff. But right. it's it's really cool because it's basically the whole idea is uh, you get right from the get go is that there's a technological hacking attack on the United States, but not like in, you know, oh, one power plant was compromised or a hospital was shut down, but like the full deal. Right. And he shows a lot of cool little bits of tech in it. Right. Like one of the things that's got a ton of attention is all of these self-driving Teslas <laughs> that <laughs> self-drive themselves out of a factory. And then are basically slam into each other, blocking roads and shutting down like the highway infrastructure. Fascinating. 
Yeah. So you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, there's a scene where you could see, I mean, I'm sure a lot of it is done with special effects, but it appears to be a hundred or so white Teslas that have all been smashed into each other. Uh, you know, just, and they're all brand new with the stickers still on still the windows. On, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, um, the show was, uh, you're thinking of was Mr. Robot. Oh, uh, Mr. Robot. Of course. Thank you. So yeah. Anyway, a lot of that technological stuff, there's some drones, there's some weapon, different weaponry, there's, you know, hacking and all this. And, it, and the show's not a like command view of it. It's not, you're not at the Pentagon or anything. You're just, there's just two families that are basically in this, you know, this neighborhood and that's all you see. You never see outside of the this these few people, and you're seeing it through their perspective. Interesting. But it definitely gets you thinking a lot. It it's definitely very scary to watch. Uh, fortunately, I know enough technology, you know, enough technology not to be too scared by it, because I know there's a lot, probably a lot more fail safes. Well, I know there are a lot more fail safes going on right. than what are shown here, and I also know that. To get something to work right, like even like a smart bulb, <laughs> takes a lot of people. Like, you know, there's got to be people at different companies and people maintaining infrastructure and everything's got to be working right. Or your smart bulb, you can't turn it on or off with your voice, right? right? To get it to work wrong would actually be going against the flow of all the technology. Right. And you could probably do it, but to get like lots of things going wrong in a very specific way. Right. At a very specific time would be probably insurmountable. I mean, if you want to shut down a power plant and you really wanted to do it, you had a lot of resources to throw at it, fine. But if you wanted to shut down all the power plants and all the internet service providers and this and that and all that and time it out, ugh, I mean, it's like they can't get that stuff to work right normally. How are you going to get it to work wrong in a specific wrong in a, manner a very specific way it, yeah. it, it's it's tough uh so yeah so i so i'm not as scared of it uh watching it that i think some people might be but oh it, it it was well done i thought it was well done in terms of like you know how it how it showed some interesting aspects of things and it'll get people thinking and it's important to have this stuff because the reason safeguards are built into our technology and fail safes and such is because of people writing and making shows like this yes, and getting yep. people to be paranoid and saying things like, well, maybe we should have, we already have a way to stop this. Maybe we should have two or three more. <laughs> you know? so, question for you, um, yeah. Mr. Robot. One of the reasons I loved Mr. Robot yeah. is that unlike so many shows, um, they actually got the technology right. Yeah. Uh, you know, that when they were bringing up a computer at a screen, it was actually a real computer with a real operating system that mm -hmm. you recognize and so forth. Um, how's he doing here? It, okay. It, it gets away with a lot simply because these are not the people involved. You know, these are people that are experiencing it. Mm -hmm. So you don't see anybody doing a hack. You never meet the bad guys or the good guys. You're just meeting some people being affected by this. Um, some stuff, I mean, the stuff looked that you saw that was technology kind of looked okay. Uh, like one of the things I kind of liked is they never lost power at the house that this was all made at, which was kind of like, well, wait a minute. I thought they're supposed to lose power everywhere. Well, they didn't at this house, right? Which shows that, yeah, okay. It didn't work everywhere, right? They weren't able to, this neighborhood didn't get shut down. There was one point where I saw a, uh, a like a, uh, there was a cell phone that showed a bunch of alerts on it that gave some clues as to what was happening. But the person instantly lost the notifications and just had to keep <laughs> recalling. I think one of them said this. I think one of them said that. And I'm like, I know you just go into your notification center and you can see those, you know, but it, but it is typical for people not to know that kind of, of thing. Course. And they were yeah. able to get yes. away with, with that. Um, uh, I found it interesting that, that we briefly saw that the car that somebody was driving had an AM radio in it, like had the, all the radio stuff, right? Sirius mm -hmm. XM and FM mm -hmm. and all that. And there was an AM there. It specifically showed, matter of fact, while the person was out of the car, it flipped through and sh and, sh and he heard something over AM radio. But it never occurred to anybody else to actually go to the car and say, hey, we do have AM radios in our cars, strangely. Right. Let's get sit in the car and listen to AM radio and figure out what's going on. <laughs> so... You know, it's like it, it scores a win for the fact that it doesn't just this it just doesn't ignore the fact that AM radio would have been a solution for them to find out what's going on because it specifically showed one. Right. But it 
didn't have any of the characters actually think of it. Which, um, you know, is, is actually pretty realistic. It's funny because um, if I'm not mistaken, the car makers right now are uh, lobbying to uh, remove AM from yeah. cars. I think believe it's required right now. And, you know, I understand why. But um, I just find it interesting that they've been lobbying because I, I was thinking about it. If I had to get to the AM radio in my Tesla, yeah, I'm not sure I'd know how. <laughs> it, would, it would take some exploring because I don't think I've ever actually oh. fired it up. I guess in this scenario, your Tesla would have driven away long before you thought of to go to your garage. Probably, to yeah, to... <laughs> probably. But, yeah. but you know, I it did make me think. It's like, because I used to have, before I, my last move, I used to have like a an old AM radio that not only was like, it was like shortwave AM, FM, little handheld thing. And it right. had a little hand crank. Yep. Yeah. I have so one you of could those. actually crank it and like listen for a few minutes, as long as you, you know, your hand held out and, right. you know, it, it, res it reserved a little bit of battery life to it if you did that. Um, but I have no idea where it is now <laughs> after my last move. So it's like, uh, you know, it was, it was nice to get as a gift and then stick in the place in the basement where I knew where it was and never right. have to use. I should probably relocate it. But anyway, it's, it's, it's uh, definitely if you're into technology and the type of stuff we talk about, uh, it's an interesting movie to watch because it's got a lot of that stuff in there. I will add it to my list. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear what you think about it. So self-promotion. Yeah. Um, so the article I want to point people at this week is very timely. It's, is private browsing really private? It's askleo.com slash 27929. And the reason it's so timely is because just in the last couple of weeks, they announced, I believe, a settlement with Google for misleading people about how they do or do not track people using private browsing or incognito mode or whatever, uh, whatever you happen to call it. Um, the important thing about private browsing is that it's very clear what it does and does not do. It's just that people assume right. that it does a lot more because the name kind of implies it. So uh, it's an important understanding to have if you rely on private browsing for what you think is privacy, uh, it may or may not be. So anyway, is private browsing really private? Askleo.com slash 27929. Cool. I've got, uh, I'll, I'll point out a video I did. I had a problem with uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Day because they fell on Mondays, days I usually publish. So what am I to publish on a day I know nobody's going to be watching? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I got something off of my list. Uh, you, you know, don't you hate it when you ask for somebody to send you a screenshot and what you get is a picture they took with their phone uh, of their screen? Yep. Um, I've, I've seen, I've gotten those. Yep. Oh yeah. So, and it just, it's, it's amazing. Right. And there's a whole Reddit subreddit dedicated to these. Uh, so oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, yeah. So I went and, uh, I was like, I need to do a video on how to take, a, I've done tons of videos on how to take screenshots, but they're right. usually 10 minutes long and show you all of the advanced functionality, how to mark them up, how to save them out oh, right. of various yeah. things. And it's like, okay, what I need to do is make one that has no frills. It's here's how to take a screenshot and that's it. I'm not going to tell you anything else. No extra stuff. Just right. take a screenshot and I want to do it in one minute. So I made a one minute video, which is very uncharacteristic for me. <laughs> uh, that is, I could just show people uh, whenever they ask me, I don't know how to take a screenshot. Here you go. Do you have, do you have one minute? Because if you have one minute, <laughs> you can learn how to take a screenshot. Now, one minute will change your life. Yeah. There you go. Um, so while you're at, well, I'm so the, the, my other pet peeve when mm. people send me screenshots um, and I'm actually not sure exactly why this is happening, but rather than sending me the image file, they send me a word document containing the yeah. image. I don't know why that, those. I don't know why that happens. Um, and we've been responding to them saying, Hey, please send me the image file, uh, word documents. We don't open because, you know, potentially they could be malicious. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. So yeah, I think, I'm, I think I know why it happens though. Okay. I think they, the, they know how to take a screenshot in the manner that copies it to the clipboard. And that's oh, all and they, they need know. to paste it somewhere. Yeah, they need to paste it somewhere, and they live in Microsoft Word. Everything's a Microsoft <laughs> Word doc, right? They take some notes in Microsoft right. Word. They do a letter in Microsoft Word. That whatever it is, it's all that. So they copy it. I have a screenshot. The only thing I know to do with it is paste it into a Word document. I pasted it. Now save. There you go. There's your screenshot. Yeah, I think that's yep. what's happening. The downside, of course, is that Word um, trying to be helpful uh, often 
reduces the resolution of the yeah. image because it thinks it's fitting it to a paper page and the result is uh, often not readable. Exactly. Yeah. All righty. Well, that is our first episode for 2024. God, it's hard to believe that it's 2024. We're in the future. We are, we are living in the future. That wraps us up for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we'll, we'll see you again real soon. Bye-bye. Bye. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com, the TEH211. If you have a comment or question for us, be sure to leave it on the show notes page. The TEH Podcast is hosted by Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com and Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com and edited by Connie Delaney. I'm your synthetic announcer, Adam, from ElevenLabs.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here real soon.